This is The Lack with Nina Power and Benjamin Studebaker. Today we're doing The Banshees of Anishirin, and I'll kick us off. The Banshees of Anishirin came out in 2022. It stars Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson as two Irish guys who used to be friends. They used to go to the pub and drink their days away, but all of a sudden Gleeson is sick of Farrell. He won't go to the pub with him anymore, and when they are at the pub together, he won't sit with him. Farrell can't understand why. He forces Gleason to explain it to him. As it turns out, Gleason has decided that Farrell is just too dull for him. He wants to spend his remaining years composing music. He doesn't want to waste any more time listening to Farrell talk. This revelation explodes Farrell's view of himself and of his life. He becomes deeply depressed, distraught that anyone could find him dull. He thinks Gleason is having him on, that it must be some kind of joke but it isn't. After Farrell repeatedly tries to force Gleason to be his friend, Gleason gives him an ultimatum. Every time Farrell talks to him, he will cut off one of his fingers. If he loses enough fingers, he won't be able to play the fiddle anymore. It's clear that this isn't just about the music for Gleason. He's really sick of this guy. Farrell is very upset by all this. He confides in his sister, played by Carrie Condon. Condon's character is very bright, much smarter than Farrell's. She knows he's dull, but she also considers him a truly nice man. And Farrell is a good guy. When he discovers that a young man in the village is being beaten by his father, Farrell gives the young man a bed for the night. He does seem to mean well. But now that he's lost his friend, Farrell doesn't feel like going to the pub, and that means he hangs around the house and tries to talk to his sister. His sister loves him, but she doesn't really want to talk to him either and so she pushes him to return to the pub. There he finds Gleason having fun, playing the violin, hanging out with the abusive father. That sets Farrell off. How can Gleason not only refuse his friendship, but accept the friendship of a man who beats his son? Farrell tells Gleason that while he may not be the brightest bulb in the box, at least he's nice. He used to think Gleason was nice, but he's begun to realize that Gleason has stopped being nice, that perhaps he was never nice in the first place. Gleason tells him that nobody remembers the nice people anyway, that niceness doesn't leave a legacy. But you know what does last? Music lasts. Paintings last. Poetry lasts. The music he composes may live for centuries. In that context, he considers friendship with Farrell to be a waste of scarce time. No one remembers the nice people from the 17th century, but everyone remembers Mozart. Farrell replies that his mother was nice, and he'll remember her, and his father was nice, and he'll remember him. Locals alert Farrell's sister that there's trouble at the pub. She arrives on the scene just in time to hear Farrell say that he thinks she's nice, too. But Gleason replies, Who else will remember Farrell's sister apart from Farrell? In 50 years' time, all of them will be forgotten. What matters is what lasts, and art lasts. As the situation begins to escalate, Condon intervenes and convinces Farrell to return home. But before she leaves, she corrects Gleason. Mozart was from the 18th century, not the 17th. Farrell tries to apologize to Gleason. He even tries again to be his friend. Exasperated, Gleason decides he's got to send a message. He cuts off one of his fingers and throws it at Farrell's door. At this point, Farrell's sister is convinced it's time to go. She makes a plan to leave the island and move to the big city. She tries to bring Farrell with her, but he won't leave. He's committed to the island, even though he has no friends there. All he has is this escalating feud with Gleason. Once his sister leaves, Farrell becomes even more obsessed with Gleason. He even lies to one of Gleason's new friends to convince the man to leave the village. He's now using deceit to try to isolate Gleason in a bid to force Gleason to be his friend again. When Farrell tells the young man about his ploy, the young man is disappointed. Didn't Farrell used to be nice? Now he's just like everyone else. Upset at having lost the respect of the young man he tried to help, Farrell confronts Gleason once more, this time forcing his way into Gleason's home. After Farrell says his piece, Gleason cuts off all the remaining fingers on his hand and throws all of them at Farrell's house. So much for playing the fiddle. Now, Farrell is an animal lover. 
He has this donkey of which he is particularly fond. The donkey eats one of the fingers, chokes on it, and dies. Farrell holds Gleason responsible for the donkey's death. When Gleason hears of the donkey's fate, he feels terrible. He tries to apologize, but it's too late for that. Farrell tells Gleason he's going to burn his house down. And the next day, that's precisely what he does. Standing outside on the beach, Gleason asks Farrell if this makes them square. But Farrell says that because Gleason didn't stay in the house and burn to death, they're not square. There is no way for Gleason to be free of Farrell in this life. The film seems to suggest that it's because Gleason and Farrell are committed to this specific place that their feud escalates to this point. It's the conservative, small-town atmosphere that forces the issue. There's only one pub, and Gleason and Farrell keep bumping into each other. There are only a handful of roads, and they run across one another all the time. Each can reach the other's home on foot. If they lived in a big city, it would be much harder for them to get this involved with one another. But at the same time, city life doesn't seem to suit Farrell. After all, he likes his donkey, and he likes to remember the nice people, the people he knows personally. He's all about interpersonal ties. He wouldn't have those ties, that sense of rootedness, if he just up and left. Is it because he's dull that he thinks in this way? Well, maybe. But he is nice, at least at the start of the film, and if Gleason had been willing to indulge him, he would have gone on being nice. But why should that be Gleason's job? Are we obligated to be friends with people we can't stand? Surely Gleason has a right to decide not to be Farrell's friend. Well, he would have this right if he lived anywhere larger than this village. But the smallness of the village necessarily conflicts with those kinds of individual rights. Individuals can't freely choose their associates in a place as small as this. You have to find a modus vivendi with the other villagers, even if that means having an unwanted conversation from time to time. Gleason wants the peace and quiet of village life, but he is unwilling to accept that village life also entails putting up with the villagers. If he really wanted to make music free from Farrell's distractions, he's the one who would have to move away. But Gleason doesn't move away, because what Gleason really wants is not to compose music, but to have control over his life. He came to this island not for the music, but for peace and quiet, a euphemism I know all too well. When people say they want peace and quiet, what they really want is control over the frequency with which they interact with others and over the types of interactions they have. All that talk about legacy and Mozart is just fronting. He really just wants to have his cake and eat it too, and he doesn't care if it hurts somebody's feelings. In liberal, individualist, capitalist societies, we frequently find ourselves in this sort of position. We think we, as individuals, ought to have the right to make these decisions for ourselves. But we often exist in geographic and institutional settings that qualify those rights in ways we prefer not to admit. Our individuality is everywhere asserted in principle, but material conditions always limit the degree to which it can be realized in fact. We do live cooperatively in society with one another, and this means living in systems that push us into contact with other people at times not of our choosing. We can move to the big city to try to have more control, but in the big city what you gain in anonymity you lose to crowds. Yes, you don't have to be friends with anyone in particular in the city. You're free to ghost people if you like, but you have to deal with cacophony, with noise, with the consequences of a society organized in this alternative way. You may not have to run into the annoying fellow at the pub, but you end up going to meetings and becoming part of committees. You can depersonalize disruption, but that doesn't get rid of it. So, could Gleason move to the city and compose music there? In theory, but probably not in fact. In fact, Gleason has been constituted as a subject in a manner that makes him fundamentally disagreeable. There is no straightforward solution for him. Wherever he is, he will feel disrupted and put upon. And the proliferation of subjects like Gleason creates problems for old-fashioned conservatives like Farrell. Farrell just wants to feel rooted in a place, to feel a sense of community, but because the people around him are becoming increasingly individualistic, they find his focus on the familiar boring, dull, and limiting. If the people who live in your community 
don't even want to be part of it, how are you meant to have a sense of it? And how could they come to want to be part of it, given the manner in which they have been constituted as subjects? It is not just that Farrell and Gleason cannot agree on whether to be friends. The things they want imply entirely different kinds of societies, and the society they have is stuck hopelessly in the middle. It can neither deliver on the old promise of community nor on the new promise of individuality. Farrell and Gleason are unable to confront this problem as a political problem. Instead, each becomes for the other the symbol of what is wrong with the entire social totality. In making enemies of each other, they succeed only in distracting themselves from this larger problem, this incoherent society within which they are inextricably enmeshed, a society that promises things that it cannot deliver. Anyway, let's hear what Mina thinks. Right. Yeah, interesting take. I, um, yeah, where, where to begin? It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a very, in a way, simple film, but it does raise some complicated issues, some of which I, I kind of agree with your take. It's not the, quite the one I had. I just, before we, before I get into it, I just wanted to note, um, how great the acting is in this film. Uh, also from the animals, <laughs> incredible animal acting throughout. The animals often are posed there as these kind of um, silent witnesses, actually, to what is happening. So often the the cow, a cow or a horse is standing by the window or the animals are moving in and out of the houses. Um, and they're also silent, which I think is important. Um, and their death is silent too. And... The very there's a very good, very uh, menacing kind of older woman character who sort of is quite, um, I mean, which which like is too too obvious in a way, but she she has a sort of prophetic quality and a very spooky quality, and she's often talking about deaths and you know what is to come, and there is this sort of historical image of an island which is deeply mysterious. At the same time, there's a civil war going on on the mainland, which I think is definitely we have to note um, because I think it sets up this question about whether it's fundamentally war or fundamentally peace that humanity partakes in or this question of both. And that's a question of, that is raised by the, by the characters. And with, I think, the Colin Farrell character ultimately siding on the inevitability or the inescapability of war, that that antagonism is more fundamental than harmony or however we want to um, oppose it. And, of course, this is a very ancient philosophical point as well, like when Heraclitus talks about war being the father of all things, you know, war is understood to be a kind of generative principle but also a kind of fundamental element. And it's something that we all undoubtedly think about when there are wars going on all the time. We have Israel-Palestine, we have Ukraine-Russia, you know, we have wars in Sudan and many, many other places. Whether there is something intractable or impossible to avoid, you know, like the the, the fantasy of perpetual peace, <laughs> to use Kant's phrase, combined with something else that Kant diagnoses, which is our great unsocial sociability. You know, the fact that we are permanently in a state of limbo between wanting to be sociable and wanting to not be sociable, which is also explored in this film very well, I think. And the, and the fact that social life is filled with ambivalence, antagonism, irritation, you know, so for, for any of our relationships, whether they're with family, friends, loved ones, however much we love them, there are inevitably going to be these quite difficult scenarios, which are, I think, precisely in an age of convenience, s sometimes people want to simply avoid, cut that out, you know, cut out the difficulty of what it actually means to be friends with someone. And I think friendship is a particularly ambiguous and enigmatic relation, which is why I think it's very, very interesting. I mean, of course, we can talk about romantic relationships, marriages and um, father-daughter relationships, brother-sister relationships. You know, we have a map 
from our own experience often of what, of what those things are, like, you know, we always talk about social roles, what it would mean to be, for example, a good daughter to one's parents. You know, we could talk about specific actions, whether it would involve returning home if one's parents were ill and so on. But friendship, by, very, by its very definition, is more ambiguous, precisely because there is a voluntary dimension to it. And there is often an extremely mysterious and enigmatic quality to friendship. One might be friends with somebody because you've known them a long time, but even that doesn't quite explain uh, why at a certain point you became friends with this person rather than anyone else or why the relationship has survived. Many relationships like that don't survive. People you're friends with at school, you're not necessarily friends with them 20, 30 years later. Uh, although you might be, you or you might residually hold a kind of concern for them. I recently heard about a someone I was very close to at school whose father had, had just died, and you know I sent my condolences via my parents because in a way I didn't want to directly communicate with this person, but at the same time I wanted them to understand that I was, you know, thinking of them, right? And you know there there are complicated reasons why I wouldn't directly contact this person but I still care about them on some level, right? Because of our past and our past relationship and past friendship. And I suppose one of the really difficult questions that's raised by this, by this film is, is whether one should, whether one has an obligation to the friendship itself, right? So not just to the person that one is friends with, but to an ideal or an idea of friendship. And obviously the Greeks um, and many others have talked about friendship at length. We're quite, quite familiar, I think, with the sort of uh, three main types of friendship, um, as Aristotle and others talk about. You know, we can talk about a friendship that is one of exchange. You know, I do something for you, you do something for me. We can talk about a friendship of enjoyment, like it's, you know, fun to hang out with this person. And then I suppose the idea of the philosophical friendship, which would be like a friendship in pursuit of the good or, a, you know, a shared uh, telos, which is sort of bigger than than your individual desires or your individual preferences. Um, so that there is a kind of aspiration for friendship that is present in the Western tradition for a very long time, you know, that friendship and, and of course, Plato, Plato's separation of, of sexual friendship and platonic friendship is very, very important, you know, because the quest for beauty, the quest for the forms um, has to transcend mere bodily pleasure, whether it's, you know, just being someone's drinking buddy or, or you know, being their sexual partner or whatever, that there is something potentially higher to be gained in dialogue itself, in the philosophical um, conversation. Um, and I think very rarely friendships are like this. Um, and that if one ever has, if, if one is ever able to have one of those friendships, it's relatively rare um, and, and, re and very uh, special. Um, also not without its tensions and problems, like, like all relations. Um, so I was really, yeah, quite, quite moved by this film. And I, I think that, you know, the civil war in the, in the background, raises the question and to a higher level, but it's playing out on the both the macro and the political and the historical and the personal and the intimate um and the and the social as well. And I it's it's certainly true that in a smaller place one cannot get away from others in the same way. I mean I grew up in a very, very, very small village. It's not even a village, it's sort of smaller than that, like a hamlet kind of place. And um it's certainly the case that somewhere like that, everybody knows everybody else's business, more or less. You know, there are things like gossip that are extremely dominant because, you know, you see the same people all the time and everybody is sort of interested in everyone's business. And it's not necessarily malevolent, um, although there are some sort of malevolent gossips in this film, like the shopkeeper, for example, you know, people who are kind of maybe take too much interest in other people's business or opening their mail uh, and so on. And, and, you know, actually my mother has a very good reputation in our village I think I mentioned before because people can talk to her and she doesn't share what they they say to her you know so she has a reputation as someone who is able not to gossip if you see what I mean so people can talk to them about their problems and she will she won't get uh, enjoyment out of <laughs> telling their stories right um, and, that, and that's a very precious attribute in a small place um 
yeah and i i i it's a, again it's a huge huge tension isn't it between the 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 proximity the locality the commitment to place and the allure of anonymity of the city you know and i i now i went from a, a tiny village to the biggest city in in britain and i think one is always torn when i go back home especially the older i get i can see precisely why people would live somewhere smaller and and indeed more beautiful in many ways and more peaceful and more filled with animals and and trees and birds um but at the same time you know in the city there are many things i can do and people i can see that i wouldn't be able to see if i if i moved back to wiltshire um and i suppose yeah just just one other aspect is the very interesting relationship between, I suppose, self-mutilation and creativity, which recalls Van Gogh or, you know, other figures. And I, I was reminded of um, Georges Bataille's very interesting essay uh, called Sacrificial Mutilation and the Severed Ear of, of Vincent Van Gogh, or Vincent Van Gogh, I'm not pronouncing his name properly, but uh, in which Bataille precisely talks about Van Gogh's uh, gesture um, as a as a model of sacrifice, um, and that this is that it was a kind of sacrifice to the sun, um, and it's yeah just a very very interesting um, relate you know idea that basically in the age of a kind of post sacrificial world that the artist's sacrifice in this instance is a kind of harking back to a, a different understanding of ritual um, in the name of a kind of creative sacrifice um, and so on. And I, I think there is something, um, you know, so Bataille talks about the spirit of sacrifice that, that lives on in, in this seemingly crazy gesture, right? Because, of course, the priest reminds um, Combe that self-mutilation is one of the greatest sins, you know, because to to destroy God's creation, however you do it, is, of course, sinful. Um, and, of course, it's profoundly tied to the practice that Com wants to be eternal, you know, the, 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 the creation of music and his, his attempt to separate himself from the everyday, from the gossip, from the chatter, they call it, you know. And I was also thinking about Heidegger, when Heidegger makes this separation between Rada and Gareda, like the idea of, of, of sort of um, authentic speech and gossip, you know, or chatter, you know, like he makes this separation between those tendencies in language, right? Like that, that most of the time we, one is engaged in like small talk, you know, chat, and then they, 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 they have specific words for it in, in, the, in the Irish film, uh, you know, yeah, the way they're talking about it. Um, as something like to pass the time, but rather than something that is addressing more fundamental questions or is, is pointing towards a different understanding of ontology and, and so on. And, and yeah, I, there's a question really about how much time does one spend with what kind of people, for what reason, you know, are, are interactions fundamentally dominated by a kind of instrumentality or do we, in fact, also have room and openness for non-instrumental forms of friendship? And I think the most difficult question for me, one I struggle with, with people in my life often, I'm sure everybody does, is when a friendship has maybe run its course or maybe when a friendship becomes intractable, not necessarily even antagonistic, not, not necessarily this kind of bizarre vengeance which again is enigmatic right the reason for this uh feud is enigmatic just as the reason for being someone's friend in the first place is enigmatic and i think there's sometimes a question that's always slightly open about what the nature of one's friendship is with somebody and and often it's very unclear how much you feature in someone's mind as their friend and how much they feature in your mind as your friend. And there could be huge asymmetry. And I think sometimes there is asymmetry when somebody thinks you're much closer to them than you do or vice versa, you know, and, I, and I'm not saying, you know, <laughs> one, one always knows, like you don't know. Um, and there's something about that ambiguity of friendship itself, which I think is just perfectly um, explored in this film, which also has these great, it's very well written, 
great moments of, of levity very um as well these and beautiful sentences um so yeah i was pleased to pleased to have finally got around to to watching yeah yeah i think that emphasis on the more personal side of it i i figured that would be the bulk of what we talked about but that it's a little bit better for you to kick us off in that direction because i think that uh the philosopher is the one who ought to start with, you know, what does friendship mean? <laughs> no, for sure. Well, I mean, but it's so beautiful, isn't it? Because the history of Western thought is really about the dialogue. It's about, you know, it's about friendship in many ways. Um, philosophy sort of begins maybe in wonder, but then it quickly becomes a conversation, maybe a, a special kind of conversation. Um, but it is a relationship first and foremost, you know, that one always comes to understand more, I suppose, is the optimistic axiom of philosophy, that in dialogue or through dialogue, one learns more. One, one will always have a better or a different or a greater understanding than if one simply thinks alone. And, and, and of course, you, we have a, a more modern idea of philosophy as the the cogito and which which sort of in in seems to entail a more solitary idea of thinking although i must say i don't think that was descartes intention at all i think descartes is still actually very much in an older mode of thought which one of which is a sort of relationality with god but nevertheless you know we 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 sort of have a idea of the cartesian subject as sort of fundamentally first and foremost individualized which yeah, is, one of the things that's always driven me crazy is the degree to which that gets uh, projected back onto people who precede Descartes. And I think it was an unfair way of even looking at Descartes, yeah. much less the Greek philosophers. But you get this notion of, oh, you know, the vita contemplativa as the solitary practice, which, of course, in antiquity, it wasn't, there wasn't even any kind of general gesture move in that direction. Uh, the thing that is so ubiquitous about ancient thought is the idea that it has to be a conversation, that it can't just be a treatise or just a bunch of words written down in the abstract, that to present the ideas in that way would be fundamentally misleading to the point where it would be wrong even to write a treatise, you know, as far as Plato is concerned. You know, that in of itself could only lead people astray, that it's got to be conversational because that's the only way it can happen. Completely. Uh, and not just conversational, but also like locative, right? In the sense that the play, you know, all of the Plato's dialogues are set in very specific places that relate to the theme. Like on, you know, you talk about justice on the steps of the court. You talk about love outside the city walls. You know, it's it's all so um, site specific, um, person specific. You know, it's like you're talking to Phaedrus, you're talking to um, well Socrates, <laughs> or Socrates is talking at to other people. Um, you know, or or in practice, the schools, you know, where the schools were. So like Plato's Academy, you have the discussions in like the Agora, you have also the garden, you know, you have Epicurus's gut. Like these are specific places where particular kinds of conversations are happening. But you're it's right, it's completely sociable. Um Diogenes obviously is positioned as this sort of contrarian um but he only exists in relation to the city, right? Like he is, uh, you know, he, he cannot exist as this character outside of the city, you know. So he, he's in a way the most relational antagonist, you know. Yes, he's got to, somebody's got to feed him. There have to be scraps for him. Somebody's got to produce all of that. He likes to fancy himself as different from the rest of them, but he really isn't. He just is filthier. <laughs> he's funnier <laughs> but yeah anyway i think this yeah this sort of relationality um yeah i don't know it's very it's very meaningful i i don't know how to how to put it like this question of creativity as well i mean i think maybe we should talk about this a bit more because it is true that many great works are have been and are of necessity composed in solitude to some degree. You know, that there is a separation of greatness itself. You know, I just thinking about Proust in bed, writing on his endless 
scrolls of paper or composers or writers or artists, you know, often these people have to be extremely selfish in a certain way in order to to make that work. Well, they do in modernity. Mm -hmm. There's something about the kinds of stuff that we create in modernity that pushes things in that direction and creates subjects who think that they need to be alone to make stuff. And this is a, a critique that I very much apply to myself because I'm very much this sort of person. I always want to be alone and to control the space. <laughs> and I don't want anybody else you know, getting involved. And this is a very, it's a very modern, mm -hmm. modern thing. Uh, a, to even be able to think that that might be possible, to think that you could just retreat into some space, you know, have control over it, have have a bunch of books and a computer and so on and have it all near to hand and not have to go to a library, not have to go somewhere. You know, even just 20, 30 years ago, you had to go to a library if you wanted to read books. Yeah. You know, to collect a bunch of books for a personal library was something only very, very wealthy people could do. You actually had to go to some communal place and you had to be comfortable with that. And there are still many people who prefer to write in cafes or prefer to write somewhere where something's going on. But we are evolving this possibility of really, truly writing in some sanctum of silence. And uh, we, we have people who not only want this, but who think they might be able to get it. And who can, in some instances, get it now. I think much more so even than 20 years ago or 100 years ago. It is possible to wall yourself up in your house with your computer and do a bunch of creative work on your own. And as that has changed, it has facilitated the development of a particularly antisocial kind of artist, antisocial kind of philosopher who is engaged in the creative work in part as a type of escapism rather than to participate in a dialectic. And I think this is always the danger of the modern or the postmodern artist, that there will be this slipping into treating the art or treating the philosophical work as a way of walling oneself off from other people rather than contributing to something. But isn't there another dialectic, which is precisely, it's also in this film, you know, the composition, the writing the piece, but, but what's the piece ultimately for? The piece is ultimately for being played by a collective for an audience, right? So the separation of artist creation and performance is itself dialectical, right? So, you know, and, and, and novelists, when they write novels, ultimately, hopefully, presumably want to be read, you know, that, so that there is a, a, an idea of the other, there is an idea of the audience of the collective. Yeah, but that audience is now much more impersonal. Like in this film, mm -hmm. Gleason still wants to go to the pub and play the fiddle with some people. Mm -hmm. And he may not be particularly fussed which people, but he wants you know that sense of community with the music at the end of the day. He would like to spend the day composing, and then he'd like to go play it with people in a particular place. He still has that sense of rootedness. But these days... If you play the music, what you end up doing with it is uploading it to SoundCloud or Spotify or what have you, and then looking at the online reaction, something which often is more alienating than it is rooting. It doesn't ne necessarily make you feel part of something with an audience. It, it, in many cases, it's a bit adversarial and a bit, well, of course they don't like it you know, because they're silly Philistines who don't get what I'm doing. You know, there's a tendency, I think, when you put stuff on the internet to have an adversarial attitude to the audience, mm -hmm. especially as people have become more dependent on their audiences for money, you know, where the patrons are more often the people who listen or watch or read than they are some impersonal organization that you work for, like a newspaper or a, you know, a university. Yeah. You know, when you are relying on the audience, a love-hate relationship develops with the audience because you feel constrained in some way by the audience's taste. Yes, I understand what you're saying. I mean, I, I think that I was joking the other day on Twitter, I was saying that, you know, we're all like mini Medicis these days at the same time as also being the 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 the, the patrons, right? Because most of us are like subscribing to people's Patreons and Substack and, and, and you know, all these things that we want to support at the same time as many of us are also like wanting to be supported. And, you know, like we're kind of both. We've like fused the the patron um, and the and the 
and the patronized. <laughs> like we're, we're all, all of us both at the same time. Um, and that's weird. Um, that's a new development, I guess. But yeah, I, and I, I, you know, we've discussed at length before, I guess, the, the way in which that then compels people to keep making certain kinds of work or to push their arguments to extremes and, you know, and that to be rewarded for these sorts of things. Right. And that focuses on what they do when they come back to the internet and, and their public engagement. But I think it also has this corresponding solitary effect when the person is on their own or creating that this, this desire for more control in their immediate private life to make up for the fact that they feel that they're surfing the seas of this nebulous public uh, audience. And so this leads to someone who is, on the one hand, totally immersed in what other people think, mm. but in this depersonalized way, and then in their private life, obsessively controlling the environment in which they create to try to make up for the degree to which they have no control over how they perform. Yes. And I, there are also other kind of weirdnesses, which would be things like the kind of parasocial over-identification, right? So the fact that, you know, like... I just somebody was posting about Billie Eilish today, today or something. I don't know. She's this woman has posted something. She's you know, obviously a huge pop star, and you know a lot of people have somehow reacted to something she said. I don't know what it was, but this kind of over identification with somebody that you don't know, right? But but that you feel extremely close to because you're basically looking at their. Instagram, you're looking at photographs of them, you know what I mean, right? So you create these, you know, um, impersonal but very proximate types of relation, like parasocial relations, um, you know, which, you know, again, are, are just kind of very, very potentially bizarre. Like people start caring more about celebrities than they do about people in their immediacy, let's say. Yeah, people in your immediacy, the people who actually help you to create stuff are the obstacles mm. that you take out everything on because you aren't able to control the performance or the audience or the, the public internet. Though that space can never belong to you in any meaningful sense because it's too vast and too impersonal and too algorithmic. So the the sense of rootedness that you can't have there is taken out on individuals who actually do care about you and actually do help you make stuff. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I try not to ever do that, but, <laughs> um, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, I think sometimes when one is making work or writing and one has a good feeling about it, you know, this is sort of it really, isn't it? Like, you know, if you're in the zone and you're, writing something and you think, oh, this is quite good, actually, you know, well done me <laughs> for a fleeting moment. And then you're like, oh, no, it's pretty shit, actually. I better delete it or whatever. But um, <laughs> sort of there is there is somehow a kind of inner circle to that logic, you know, that one is not self-sufficient in any meaningful sense. But nevertheless, there is a sort of possibility of recognizing oneself, right? Not, not needing the recognition of the other, or you can't even have it in that moment because there is no other in that moment. You are the other writing for yourself. That, that's that separation that gets going in modernity where mm -hmm. either you are alone in the creative sanctum making it for you or you are performing it and it completely belongs to them and not to you. And in this more, this older kind of society, the creation and the performance would be more unified. So you would be, you know, if you think about a really, really ancient kind of musical environment, the music is being created through the performance and is being improvised and developed kind of as the performance goes along and in reaction to how the audience is vibing and there's, there's a, a connection between the performing and the creating. And the same goes for a platonic dialogue. The, the conversation is both the creation of the philosophy and its performance. Its reception is itself part of its creation, and mm -hmm. those things are, are together rather than taken apart. And we have this, this dualistic individual community thing that we get going in modernity that 
separates things that in former ages would have been understood as inextricably fused. But you have, I mean, the invention of writing is much older than modernity, you know, and, and this argument that Walter Ong and other people make that, you know, the Greeks invent tragedy to cope with the with the sadness of writing, you know, because it introduces separation. You can read people who aren't there. You know, there's a kind of distance that comes about as a consequence of this incredibly powerful new technology, which allows you to do all kinds of things, right? To record, to, you know, to note, to act, to to list and to keep accounts and, and so on. But at the same time, it introduces a fundamental split at the level of who we are because we can now hear people who aren't there by reading their words and we can read deaf people. We can, you know? Yeah. There's a sense in which that's all very dangerous, isn't it? Very right. So how do you bring a culture back together after these sort of huge transformations? I, that is in a, in a way, not, just a task to do with modernity or capitalism, no. but a task to do with you know, all of agricultural life and the things that come out of agricultural life. Exactly. Right? So, it's, so it's pre-modern. Building anything. Yeah it's, yeah, it's a pre-modern problem, I think. And that's... Yeah. But I think exacerbated and, and taken to another level by modernity. Yeah. No, no. I mean, undoubtedly. And like, we, you know, the liberal individual is a relatively recent invention. And, you know, we talk a lot about... You know, the abolition of social roles is this kind of paradoxical freedom. You know, McIntyre talks about the freedom of ghosts. And, you know, that that on the one hand, yay, all superstition and expectation is smashed. And on the other, boo, <laughs> like, you know, nobody knows what they're doing. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. All of this has been going on both before and during modernity. Mm-hmm. It's been going on. And modernity signifies a period where we notice certain aspects of it have intensified to a substantial degree. But I don't think it's a clean break or a completely alternative way of doing things. It's uh, to a large degree an acceleration of or a more visible iteration of things that were already going on and had already gone on to varying degrees in different places. You know, A lot of modern thought is remixed iterations of things like Stoicism yeah. and Epicureanism, you know, played around with and, and dorked around with. And I think in the you know in the Roman Empire, a lot of political thought had a, a bit of a modern quality to it because there was this sense that, you know, the empire is this huge, enormous thing that you can't really fully participate in, but you also can't act like it's not there. Yeah. And in that respect, the Roman Empire is not altogether different from the internet. It's much too big for anybody. But also, it's not like it doesn't exist. You can't just live as if it doesn't exist. You can't just make a city state and you know do your own thing and ignore all of it. That won't work. Yeah, I just started listening to the um, decline and fall of the Roman Empire, which I'm so sure you're familiar with. Oh, the the Gibbon book. Yeah. <laughs> From way back when. Yeah. It's quite interesting. I mean, I don't really understand all this stuff about battles and everything, but like we were saying last week, but no, it's kind of it's kind of very curious also to see where the limits of the empire, you know, so there's a long discussion about Hadrian's Wall and Scotland and, you know, how in a way some things were not permeable, even though the 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 various tribes in Britain at that time were just like barbarians and just sort of running around naked. You know, nevertheless, there was this kind of impossibility of. (laughs) Yeah, but even the tribes that lived over the borders were still affected by the thing and their cultural practices changed and they adopted more Romanized ways of living and became more settled and adopted a bunch of Roman technology. And and they were all client states or they had various kinds of relations with the the imperial court. And even even those there's there's like a whole layer of tribes on the borders of the empire that would have been tribes you could regularly do business with, trade with, that you knew more or less how they were going to behave. They weren't wild in the way that they would have been when the Romans first showed up. They were domesticated (laughs) by proximity. Yeah, no, 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 for sure. Um, Absolutely. But I mean, just returning to this question of friendship, because it is something I think about a lot. And, you know, I I have some sort of quite, I would say, like, meaningful 
friendships with men in particular, some women too, but my closest friends are male. And, but they're not necessarily easy friendships. You know, that they are often quite fraught. There's often a lot of disagreement, kind of not talking to one another for a while. You know, and, and, and this kind of question of what it is that persists, like what is it that is the, that means that the friendship will go on? You know, what is it that holds a friendship together? I think it's really quite, quite complicated. You know, is it a shared vision of the world or enough of a shared vision? Is it the intelligent conversation? Is it enjoying doing certain things together? Is it just habit? Friendships are really different depending on the setting in which you form them. Mm -hmm. uh, for me, my European friends and my Indiana friends are entirely different kinds of friends. You know, my European friends are friends who I talk about politics with or I talk about theory with, and there's a, enough overlap or enough mutual interest in the same kinds of abstract things that, uh, that you can do that. And it's not at all about proximity. You can call up and you, know, you can not even have seen somebody in person mm -hmm. and still feel very much like you know, they're your good friend, uh, purely on the basis of the kind of conversation that you have and the kind of abstract stuff that, that can go on. Uh, at the same time, you feel like if there was a real falling out about the ideas, that that would in some way compromise it. It's all about the ideas. It's not at mm -hmm. all about physical reliance. So it's all about the direction of the conversations and whether the conversations are going places that both parties feel like they're getting something out of them. My friends from Indiana, it's it's about proximity. It's, oh, we're all back in, in Indiana for the time being. So what are we what are we going to do? I mean, we might as well hang out. We get along well enough to hang out, right? And it, it meets a whole different need, which is the need to hang out. <laughs> and whether you can have a conversation, you know, sometimes you can, sometimes it's good, and, and other times you're just hanging out. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the, the friendship that is about being nearby. Yeah. And it's often, you know, hey, can you give me a ride? Or, hey, can you do me a favor? It's, it's what can you do for somebody rather than the conversation. And so there's much more of a sense that even if you disagreed about things, that that probably wouldn't be fatal to the friendship. Mm. But that also depends on having other friends that you can talk to about the ideas and about the principles. So for me, I have a lot more tolerance of my Indiana friends because I have European friends. <laughs> and I know some smart people here, some very clever people here who don't have European friends because they've never left. And they don't have that tolerance because they're looking for what I get from my European friends. They want that from their friends in town and they can't get those things from their friends in town. So they get very frustrated with their friends for having the wrong takes about things or, or mm. having the wrong views about different political or religious or social questions. And these things all get mixed up together for them in a way that makes it really difficult for them to have large numbers of close friends. It's very interesting. I'm very, I love this phrase, European friends. It sounds so exotic. Um, it does remind me of something my mother said, maybe about how the village works and it, and it works because they don't talk about certain things, you know, that the, that the basically discussions of politics and they do disagree, you know, there are people in the village, of course, who have very, very different political and religious beliefs or no, no beliefs. Um, but it works because those things are not openly and actively discussed very often. So that basically disagreement is, how, how to put it, it's the, what is more important is the collective harmony, right? Is the persistence of a certain degree of tolerance or peace, you know, which means sacrificing precisely disagreement or those, you know, potentially antagonistic discussions. And it was very interesting to hear my mother articulate it in this way. My father had an even funnier way of describing how, I think maybe I mentioned this before, but why why it was that the village was able to get along. And he, and he said simply, none of the men fancied any of the other men's wives. <laughs> so this is how the village persisted, because 
you know, each man had his wife and there was no uh, rivalry or envy or <laughs> I thought that was very, uh, I don't know, it's an interesting insight, no? Yeah, I think in the in the smaller environment, when you do have conflict, it tends to be about sex or about uh, personal habits that are disruptive to the community. Mm-hmm. And maybe somebody is a drug addict or an alcoholic mm-hmm. or a gambling addict or something, and this becomes a concern. Maybe someone has affairs. Maybe someone mm-hmm. is unfaithful. Those things do come up, and that kind of drama does come up. But it's not this big picture abstract conflict. No. Uh, whereas with the internet friends or the European friends, that's the kind of conflict that is the dangerous kind of conflict, you know, the, the abstract conflict. Um, but one thing that you know, really sticks out to me is that I would not be a good villager. You know, I would not be able to be here and, and do a good job of being friends with my Indiana friends if I didn't have European friends. Mm. And I imagine that in most villages and in most small town settings, at most points in history, people haven't been able to go somewhere else and get friends from somewhere else no. to have as this. And I think this is the the thing that the cosmopolitan people who are able to both be somewhere and to be everywhere have that is uh, not at all available to most people. Mm-hmm. And it's a, a big social advantage that we tend to take for granted. And it gives us a lot of political uh, and social flexibility that we can operate from this position of social abundance where we have whichever kinds of friends we need at whatever point in time we need them. You say that, but I, I mean, I definitely have made a series of errors regarding friendship in the past. And I think partly it's because I had a like village model of friendship and I was trying to apply it to city type friendships, which actually depended apparently upon me agreeing with people. And the moment I disagreed quite strongly, or I wanted to talk about things that people didn't want to talk about, it was far easier to sacrifice me as a friend. But I had imagined that we were friends, right? Like in some deeper, meaningful way that could tolerate disagreement. But but actually, that's not what happened at all. Like even people I, I'd helped and supported and in lots of different ways, well, indeed, in fact, they were the, the first people to turn on me, right? It, almost as if they resented me for having helped them because now I was the enemy because I said things that people disagreed with. Well, you made the fatal mistake of actually living in the European city. If you actually (laughs) live in the European city, then you only have European friends and Mm. then you don't have access to to Indiana friends. Yeah. But, But my mistake was to think that friendship, my friendships in the city had the quality of you know, that, that, that people would be committed to wanting to, to keep them alive, you know, because that, yeah. that's what but I... these are two totally different kinds of friendship that we conflate <laughs> together all the time. But that's why I, that was my mistake, if you see what I mean, yeah. because I thought we were deeper friends, especially because we'd gone through various, like, political things together. And, you know, I thought we were bound by a, a, an affection for one another at the level of our personhood, right? You know, that 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 our disagreements would not be sufficient to destroy a mutual affection. But I I was wrong. Yeah, the affection was based on they liked the way you thought. Exactly. Or they liked the way you talked. It wasn't based on they liked you. No. Or you were, you, you know, it's not like you guys did each other physical favors. Well, but that's the thing, like at the risk of sounding like a a moany bastard, I mean, I actually did help out quite a lot of people in various (laughs) ways, like, but but this is the problem with the exchange model, because it's, it creates, it does actually, it really creates problems, because it's like, you know, one, one wants to be generous to one's friends, right? One wants to support them, you know, you're, 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 maybe you're partly friends with them because you like their work, because you, you know, you feel an affinity with what they're doing and one is inspired to help them like financially or put them in contact with other people or what, you know, do you know what I mean? Like a kind of, you know, uh, oh, this is, this is something that would drive me crazy when I lived in Europe. Right. So you, you make a friend and then you go, well, we're friends. So I'm going to try to do you, you know, salads. And then you think that they're going to do them back. And European friends aren't like that. European friends won't step up. I, 
not to pick on Europeans, but I, what I really mean is people who live in big cities. Sure, right? yeah, yeah. People who live in big cities will talk to you while it's fun and all. Right, exactly. But then, you know, if I had a friend that I had a good time having a conversation with and I said, oh, you know, you have too many students, I'll take some of them. And then, you know, if somebody comes along later and goes, hey, do you have room for more students? And I go, I don't, but maybe my friend does. My friend won't reciprocate that. My friend won't go and take those students uh, mm. like I did. My friend loves hanging out and will, will enjoy talking to me, but it's it's not going to go to that level. Yeah. And I think probably people make this mistake at, at least once in their life. And I think, you know, also it's like... Um, yeah, like you're saying about, oh, when someone is in a good place and everyone wants to hang out with them and they're fun. But the moment, let's say they like, I don't know, have a drink problem or they've become depressed or they, you know, like this was happening all the time when people were being denounced online during Me Too or whatever. And it's like, no, that's precisely the moment when you need a friend is when when people are angry with you, right? Like that's when you need to be friends with the person who's being attacked, not when you abandon them, Right. Yeah. And so I think while a lot of people who have come to the big cities and gone to university and gotten degrees, they're all acquainted with the idea of only having Indiana local friends, you know, mm -hmm. and wanting to have city friends and cosmopolitan friends and college educated friends. They're all acquainted with that situation, but they don't realize that you can have the opposite problem, which is only having that later kind of friend and not having the kind of friend that you would find in, a, in the smaller town setting. Uh, and that when you repudiate one model, in favor of the other, it just gives you a different problem that it takes you a while to realize you have because you're not accustomed to having that other kind of problem. Mm -hmm. This is why I always find if I spend too much time in Indiana or too much time in Europe, I get aggravated. It doesn't work for me. <laughs> no, sure. But I think this is a, you know, perpetual, you know, ambivalence that we we have to live with in a way. And I one thing I guess I learned through you know, being kind of whatever, cancelled and ostracized was really, you don't need very many friends. I, I, I think I also had a wrong presupposition, which was something a bit like a social media model. Oh, you can be friends with loads of people, or you can sort of be a bit friends with everyone, you know? And of course you fucking can't, <laughs> you know? Like no, people, you can't have lots of friends. You what you can have, have is, is different kinds of friends. And if you have just, you know, two or three friends, but they're different kinds and they yeah. play different roles and they each play their role well, that's much better than having, you know, a dozen friends that all play the same role just okay. Yeah. You but really just need a small number of people who, who meet the needs that people have. And the advantage that the rich have is that they're mobile. They can go anywhere they want. Mm -hmm. So when they need friends that aren't local or aren't nearby, they just go to where they are. Yeah. And you know, we're we're not rich enough to do that. I can't just fly to the UK whenever it is that I want to hang out with my friend Nina. So. <laughs> no, and I'm sorry. I wish I had loads of money. I could pay for you to do that. But um, <laughs> right. If we had loads of money, then that's what we would do, and that's what rich people do, and that's why they don't see any problem with this society that tends yeah. to put you either in a situation where you only have Indiana friends or in a situation where you only have European friends. It's true, but I mean, the older I get, the more grateful I am for really you know, having any friends at all, you know, <laughs> honestly, but I, I, that sounds a bit sad, but what I mean is like to even have one good friend is such a privilege, you know, and an honor and a luxury and like, you know, to have some one person you can trust or to, you know, to have interesting conversations with or someone you can talk to about whatever is on your mind is already, um, enormous, right? It's, you know, it goes beyond what, I don't know. I mean, it really, it makes life worth living, right? <laughs> like, Well, I think also one of the tragic things is that people tend to refuse the kinds of friendship that are available to them. Because if you have one kind of friendship that's available, you tend to want the kinds of friendship that aren't available. Mm -hmm. And then the friend that is available strikes you as inadequate. And so you end up refusing the friendship that is there for you in pursuit of a different kind of friendship you can't get from the location that you're in. Mm -hmm. And then I, I think that's that's where it starts to get really sad because then you have people who, even insofar as they could have friends, get into a, a situation where they can't accept the friendship that is there.
Anyway, we are at just about an hour. So, thank you guys so much for listening. We're going to go to the B-side for the Patreon listeners. Have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.